learning. We've all experienced it, but how does it happen? More importantly, how do we create powerful learning experiences that change people's lives? In this podcast, we'll explore the world of adult career change education, from learning theories to classroom experiences to the kinds of people who make life-changing education possible. So come learn with us. This is the future of professional education, powered by Thrive DX. Hi, and welcome back to the Future of Professional Education. I'm your host, Sean Dagoni-Clark, and I'm excited once again to speak with the guest that we have today. This is someone that I've been looking forward to speaking with for quite some time now, and I'm going to let her introduce her, her full career journey because it's a really interesting one, but she's had a long career in education in many different areas and certainly some things that you will have heard of. And so I'm, I'm not going to spoil her story about her career journey, but uh, I will say that some of the stuff she's done is really fascinating, and this is going to be a great conversation. So Kaya Henderson, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sean. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with that career journey. So it's a fascinating one. Just walk us through what you've done. So uh, I started my, this is my 30th year in education, if you can believe that. Um, I can barely believe that. Um, but I started out teaching uh, in the South Bronx through Teach for America. I never, ever thought that I would go into education. My mother was a career teacher, principal, central office person. I thought educators were noble, but a little crazy. Um, and somehow or another, after graduating from Georgetown with a degree in international relations, I decided how could I go abroad and help other people if I didn't do something to help my own country and Teach for America felt like a really natural thing for me to do. And so I joined Teach for America, totally changed my life. That two years of teaching in the South Bronx, um, which was not very far from where I grew up, um, completely recentered me and made me think that this was the most important work that I could possibly be doing for my life. So after my two years of teaching, I was a recruiter for Teach for America. I became the national director of admissions for the organization, recruiting and selecting all of their core members. Um, I then moved to Washington, D.C., where I led the Teach for America office um, in D.C. That's where I first fell in love with D.C. public schools. Um, I did that for a few years and then uh, went to work for the New Teacher Project, which was really about building districts' capacity to recruit and retain um, high-quality teachers. And that was really, really important work because when I was at Teach for America, I felt like I was putting bright lights into a dark cave. When I was at the New Teacher Project, I had the opportunity to rewire the cave in some respects. Um, and so got to work with school districts all across the country doing that. And then uh, got the call to come to DCPS and serve directly I started there as the deputy chancellor and did that for three and a half years. And then I served as chancellor of D.C. public schools uh, for six years, which is a long time in superintendent world. Um, that was an amazing job where I got to help turn around the lowest performing, what was the lowest performing urban school district in the country. Um, along the way, I did a couple of other things. I started I co-founded an organization called Edlock, Education Leaders of Color. Um, I did work in, I don't know, a bunch of different ways and places. And after um, serving at DC Public Schools for almost 10 years in total, 
Um, I decided it's in decent enough shape to give to somebody else. And it was time for me to rest a little bit and think about what was next. I did some consulting work and then ended up back on the mothership, um, this time at Teach for All, uh, which is the international version of Teach for America, where we uh, work in over 60 countries. And so I call that my international lady of leisure time, where I was traveling to a bunch of different countries um, and helping them understand the role of community in transforming education. And then the pandemic grounded me. Um, and you know I was working deeply with communities who couldn't just hop on a Zoom and continue to work. And so I had the chance to think differently about how I wanted to spend my time. And there was a long held dream about uh, creating an education platform targeting African-American students and families. And so in May of 2020, um, along with one of my good friends, Harvard economist Roland Fryer, um, we started Reconstruction, which is an online platform that teaches African-American history, culture, literature, et cetera. Uh, and we've been doing that for the last two years. Like I said, really amazing journey there. Um, and, that's... and I also, wait, I also, oh, there's more. I just remembered. <laughs> yeah, I also uh, am in the podcasting world of these course. days. I co-host <laughs> co uh, an amazing podcast called Pod Save the People with uh, three other friends um, where we talk about news that often goes overlooked. So that's, I think, most of what I'm doing. Yeah, worth mentioning that one on the podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> and for, for people listening, Reconstruction is reconstruction.us. I'll put links in the episode notes so that you know where you can see these things because you definitely should check out Reconstruction. But before we get there, Kaya, I know you believe really strongly in the need for inclusive learning. And that's something that we've talked about. And it's, uh, I know it's very meaningful to you. But let's, let's define that. What does that mean to you? What does inclusive learning mean? And how have you seen non-inclusive learning play out in education? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds um, like you have. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think there are lots of um, there are lots of studies that show when people see themselves in content, in curriculum, in movies, in books, in whatever, they attach to and engage with that content um, in much more meaningful ways. That was what I learned. One of the things that I learned at DC Public Schools, we overhauled the curriculum. Um, in some respects to make it more challenging for our young people because we know that when we set high expectations, our young people will rise to the occasion, but also to make sure that they saw not just other people in other communities, but saw themselves and their own communities represented in the things that they were learning. And what we saw as a result of that were kids attaching to learning in new ways. They were motivated about the things that they were learning. Um, they connected more deeply with the content and, you know, whether that was their race or their, you know, gender or their background or whatever, um, seeing yourself in the curriculum matters a lot. And so when we think about inclusive learning or we sometimes call it culturally responsive teaching, it is connecting with the learner in ways that are familiar to them and that accelerates learning. It just accelerates learning. It motivates people. Um, 
and and like this is not rocket science we've known this for a zillion years and yet and still i see far too many educational um environments where folks are not trying to deeply connect with the the young people and the adults that they're teaching mm -hmm. even teachers when they're able to teach content that they relate to that they feel included in um, are much more motivated are more apt to be retained are more apt to perform well and so um, engagement is the name of the game yeah yeah and and i know that that's a, a major driving force for you behind launching reconstruction.us creating that inclusive and representative education absolutely i mean we just see many cases and we're have we you know we're in the midst of cultural wars right now in the united states where we're trying to decide who should teach what whose stories get told who is represented in the thing that in the things that kids are learning and you know for me looking at the messages that we send to african-american kids we feed them a steady diet of you know your history is enslavement your people were lazy and stupid and you know unable to take care of themselves or violent or whatever and in fact we actually have a very different history in the united states as african americans one that is of resilience one that is of innovation and entrepreneurship and when our young people learn that history about themselves they see themselves differently in school in life in work they feel a responsibility to continue on that legacy and i think one of the things that i've learned especially watching other cultures i watch you know my friends um, go to hebrew school to learn the jewish religion language traditions i watch my chinese friends go to chinese school to do something similar and what I realize is we can't rely on schools to teach or to be responsible for the cultural and identity development of our young people. We ask schools to do far too much. And so for me, this is a place where the African-American family, the African-American community, our civic institutions, our religious institutions can come together and rebuild strong black young people and rebuild and help other people who want to understand our history, learn our history. Yeah, and and I know that's true for my own education, that, that that's what I learned. It was about, like you said, enslavement, violence. I, I think that leads into my next question, because the tagline for Reconstruction is unapologetically black education. And I love the boldness of that of that mission statement what what does that mean and which I think is sort of coming clear from what you're saying but what does that mean and why is that important it's important because you know I think that um, in my experience people have some people have immediately seen the importance of an initiative like reconstruction and other people have actually seen it as divisive or um, as, as non-inclusive and the way I think about it is I, in the same way that Hebrew school doesn't apologize for what it does or Chinese school doesn't apologize for what it does. I'm not going to apologize for teaching black history and culture. The way I think about this, you know, Frederick Douglass has a uh, Frederick, Frederick Douglass once said, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. And I think about this as building strong African-American children who are able to engage with strong Jewish children or strong Chinese children 
or strong Greek children or strong, you know, uh, white American children, right? Um, whoever, if, if everybody else feels confident and good about who they are and our children don't, then it doesn't give us an opportunity to engage with each other in meaningful ways. And so I wanna build strong children who are, uh, strong African-American children who are able to engage with other children who are strong in their identity and culture. And together they'll figure out how to make the world a better place. Yeah, I love that quote, that's amazing. Um, it, it seems to me like reconstruction is, is kind of a pushback against the traditional Eurocentric Western educational system, right? In that it puts black experience and culture just front and center in the classroom experience in ways that most education, like I said, mine included, did not. And so obviously that's important for black students to learn about things that are representative of their experience, to learn from people who actually look like them. But also I, I wanted to ask, what's the response? And you, you alluded to this very briefly in your, in your last, uh, what, what you said last, but what's the response you've gotten from parents or students who are not black? Yeah, so I'll go there in a quick second. I wouldn't say it's a pushback okay. to the traditional school system. The way I think about it, and I ran schools, right? We asked schools to do 900 zillion things, Sean, right? All in 180 days and seven and a half hours. There is no way to do all of the things that we ask schools to do. And so for me, the question of when does this get taught? How does it get taught? Who teaches it? I, I didn't want to be constrained by what school has to offer which sometimes is 45 minutes a day during the month of February, right? I wanted our young people to have the opportunity to explore deeply as with spending as much time as they wanted to. I didn't want school board members who don't think that this is important to decide that it's not going to show up in the curriculum. And so we do this outside of school because we do it in after school programs. We do it in summer. We do it through families and churches and Boy Scout troops and Girl Scout troops because school is not the only place where learning happens for young people. Um, and so, you know, what we found is while our target is African-American students and families, we're actually open, unlike Hebrew school or Chinese school, we're open to whoever wants to learn our history and our culture. And so we have young people of all different backgrounds who are taking reconstruction classes. We've I've talked to parents who have said, I didn't get this kind of an education and I want my young person, I want my daughter or my son to have a broader sense of history than what I had. I want them to read books that I didn't get to read in school. And so we have young people of all different persuasions who take reconstruction classes. The bulk of our of the clients that we serve are African American, but we have all kinds of folks who are learning our history. Yeah, that's that's great. And and I've I've actually looked at to try to find some courses for my daughters to take because I think this is incredibly important for them to see history through a, the lens of um, something that's more representative. Likewise, we have tutors. One of I think one of the most important ways that we do our work is our young people are taught our curriculum by tutors who we call reconstructors. Mm -hmm. Like you said, many of them look like African-American kids um, because there are all kinds of studies that show uh, the positive benefits yeah. of having teachers who look like you. Yeah. And we also have teachers who don't look like African-Americans who are of different persuasions, um, but who are deeply steeped in black history and black culture. And 
we think that that's important as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and for the record, I didn't think the pushback was a bad thing. I think it needs a pushback. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, I think I I feel like I'm put in a position where people are like, you used to run schools and now you're outside of schools. So, And I actually think that ultimately, you know, what we are learning, what I'm able to do at Reconstruction, I'm able to do free from the constraints of the system. However, I ultimately believe that what we will learn at Reconstruction has deep implications for how we do education broadly. I'm I'm not one of these people who believes in, you know, small experiments off to the side. Mm-hmm. I might have to start out off to the side, but if I'm not trying to figure out how to impact the entire system, then I'll only reach a small segment of young people. And we have lots of of programs that reach a small segment of young people, but I'm trying to test out things to learn about how the system might be different. Um and so, mm-hmm. you know, even even though we're not impacting the system in big ways right now, we are, what the way we do our work, we do it with an eye to helping the broader ecosystem. So for example, you know, we've gotten pretty good at developing culturally responsive curricula. And there right now is, seems to be a dearth in the field around culturally responsive curriculum writers. Publishing houses have not hired African-American or people of color to help write textbooks. Um, School districts will come to us and say, can we have some of your writers? Because we actually want people to write curriculum that is much more inclusive. And so as part of our work, we're always hiring curriculum writers. Um, I seem to find them because I guess we know where to look and we know how to leverage networks. But we are starting a curriculum fellowship where we'll take 25 curriculum writers each year and come and develop their curriculum writing school skills with us at Reconstruction and then turn them back out on the field so that they can work for school districts, so that we, they can work for publishing houses, so that we can increase the capacity in the field to have more culturally responsive curriculum. So uh, we're always thinking about ways to um, impact the system. One of the things that I want school districts to think about is the fact that School is not the only place that kids learn. And so how do you partner with out-of-school time providers to do some of the things so that you don't have to do them? As I said, the system can't do it all. And so what are the ways that you partner with people to meet some of the needs so that you don't have to do it? Yeah, it's it's sort of a yes and, right, to the education that that we have. Yeah. So you you talked a little bit about this, that that Reconstruction is intentionally situated outside formal education systems. Um, you said that it, you didn't want to have the disagreement from school board members. You wanted to be able to do essentially what you think is really important to do. So situating that outside of those systems is kind of a bold move in my mind in the world of Common Core and you know state educational mandates and and certainly the discourse I guess we can call it on uh, you know black education that's happening throughout the country right now. Uh, I, I have thoughts on that, but I won't share them right now. But <laughs> why, uh, why, why set it up that way uh, as opposed to? And, and again, I think you've you've touched on some of this. It's it's about the freedom, I think. But but ha- I guess the question is: Has that setup been restrictive in any ways, or have you just found that it's opened the door to do exactly what you needed this to do? 
it has opened the door to do exactly what I needed it to do. Um, I don't have to argue with anybody about what should be. Um, mm. We are driven by what our customers are looking for and what we know. I have a team that has been in education for decades upon decades. And so our expertise combined with the expertise of our community allows us to create the kinds of courses that uh, we think are important. You know, one of the things that, if you know anything about my time at DC Public Schools, you know, one of the things that I'm most proud of is we, when, when I got there, we were the lowest performing urban school district um, as measured by the National Assessment of, of Educational Progress. When I left, we were the fastest improving. Now, almost six years later, we're still the fastest improving. And DC Public Schools saw the, saw the greatest growth of any school district in the country in the history of the NAEP over multiple years. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not providing, you know, janky lessons for kids. These, <laughs> these classes are rigorous. They are aligned to challenging academic standards, but I don't have to legislate or negotiate which standards we want and who likes them and what I can bake the standards in without ever talking about them. That's not what we're selling. We're not yeah. selling standards. We're selling an engaging curriculum that teaches young people stuff that they might not be learning in school. And that in fact, when they go back to school, they'll recognize, wait, I've done some of this. I know some of these concepts. I just learned them in a way that was very, very different. And so, I mean, this freedom that I have has been amazing. It also allows me to think more holistically about kids. So I'm not just doing academic classes. One of the things that we have been super concerned about is who who is the who is minding the cultural store for African Americans? Mm -hmm. Who's teaching our young people our myths and legends, the games of our culture? the foods of our culture, because many of us live far away from our extended families. And so we don't play games with our families the way we used to, or I used to growing up. During the pandemic, I watched a ton of my friends teaching their kids how to play spades. Spades is a card game that, you know, you're going to find at most black family gatherings. And many of our young people don't know how to play spades. And so we are able to create a course called a safe space for spades where kids can come <laughs> and learn how to play spades. We have a course called Cooking for the Soul, where young people learn the history of five soul food dishes, yeah. and then they learn how to cook them. Yes, I want kids to learn how to cook black eyed peas and rice. I also want them to know why that's an important food for us yeah. at New Year's. I want them to know how black eyed peas traveled over the foodways from Africa to America, right? I, I, these are all very important things that if you're not standing next to your grandma in the kitchen learning this stuff, then there's a chance that you won't learn it. And that, I mean, do you know what it would take for me to get that kind of a class going in a traditional school system? I'd have people who say, that's not important, that's not history, but it is. It's history, it's math, it is, you know, spades is strategy, it's critical thinking, it is, these are all ways that we can continue to build strong, whole children without it just being reading and math. I love that, yeah using food as the way into this discussion of culture and 
Absolutely. wonderful. Yeah. So um, it's switching gears just a bit, uh, Thrive DX creates adult career change education, which is just a little bit different from what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I, and I know your students are in the K-12 space, but is there anything that you can extrapolate from that work that would apply to adult learners? So I think, you know, this, this point about inclusion, about people seeing themselves in the curriculum, about them seeing what is possible through the things that they are learning is really important. I think that, um, I think that accrues to adults as well as children. Mm -hmm. I think one of the other things that we seem to have forgotten about learning is the way we learn naturally is something piques our interest and then we want to go deep in that, right? Everybody has had a, you know, an, a seven-year-old who has gotten obsessed with dinosaurs and you have more dinosaur books in your house. You have to go to every dinosaur exhibit and me, every dinosaur that, movie, that right? Like me. <laughs> That's right. You go down the rabbit hole. Yep. I think one of the things that we've learned is that that is real learning mm -hmm. when kids find something that is interesting to them and they want to do more and more of it and go deeper and deeper in it and be challenged, they can actually, you know, do work at higher grade levels when the thing is deeply interesting to them. They will figure it out, they will press on. You see this, you know, with kids who love computers or whatever. Yeah. The same is true of adults. When adults have the opportunity to go deeply in their, in their subject or content area, they will. And I think we have been so consumed with trying to give people a breadth of knowledge that we've ignored the depth piece and depth is how you actually become an expert in in whatever it is that you're passionate about and so i think one of the things that i hope the adult learning community um appreciates and 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 enables is deeper learning for adults um, to become expert at whatever career it is they are shifting into. And if possible, to do that representatively, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so final question for me is, so Reconstruction is all about teaching others and sharing that wealth of knowledge that you and others have about uh, African-American culture. What is something that it's taught you? Um, I think what it, we had a hint about this, um, but it has just exploded from me. And that is that reconstruction is an opportunity to build community. We, the things that we see happening because people are coming together and learning together, we're no longer just serving kids in the K to 12 space. We're serving families who want to take a cooking class together. We're serving whole communities who say, we haven't had this kind of interaction, positive interaction with our kids in a long time. Can we do something like this every month? We are serving um, in places where we were in Louisiana this summer after Hurricane Ida decimated a lot of the rural places that still weren't online. We were able to partner with folks to build pop-up academic centers and bring young people who are otherwise isolated together. When we come together and learn together, we build community, we come up with new solutions, we're able to do far bigger things than we thought just by ourselves. And so reconstruction is and, and this is this is in fact why we named why we named the company Reconstruction, because it harkens back to a time in the United States history, in American history, where African Americans in twelve years 
the reconstruction period is just the 12 years immediately after emancipation we own 20 percent of the farmland in america we built 5,000 community schools and 37 historically black colleges and universities. We registered 500,000 black men to vote and the presidential election was only one on 300,000 votes. So for people you know, who tell us that our vote doesn't matter, it matters that our, we're not, we don't have intellectual traditions or education is not our birthright, not true. The first thing that we did when we got free was we started building schools, right? We opened our own businesses, incorporated our own towns and banks and insurance companies. And when we come together, we build. We are, we are people of vision. We are people of ambition. We are people of resilience. And we are seeing that happen. We wanted to hearken back to the Reconstruction era, but we also think that this is about reconstructing the Black community. And we see that um, in the stuff that we do in in ways that we never imagined hmm. that's beautifully said yeah i think anybody listening here can can hear why i've been so excited to talk to kaya about this um i just i, I love the way that you think about education and, and the stuff that you're doing with it it's amazing that just what you've been able to accomplish like you said you have this sort of go big or go home mentality and it's mm-hmm. it's really showing it's it's wonderful to see so thank you yeah, so so thank you so much for, for doing this and uh, for being a part of this, this uh, conversation. And I've, I've really enjoyed hearing about just sort of where Reconstruction came from and your thinking going into it, but then also just the learnings that came out of it. It sounds like just a, a phenomenally effective platform uh, for learning. And, and like I said, I've, I've, been, I've looked a couple times now to try to find a class that will work for my kids because I think that this mm-hmm. is something that's really important. We would love to have you. Yeah, thank you. And folks, that's all for now. Thank you for learning with us. Did you enjoy this podcast? Please consider leaving a rating or review wherever you found it. And I hope you'll also recommend it to your friends.